The following interview took place at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Law, Not War, a conversation with Mr. Ben Ferenc, interviewed by Rabbi Yaakov Feli. In 1920, a baby boy named Beryl was born to Jewish parents in a little peasant cottage in Transylvania. Within the year, however, the family fled the country to escape Romanian persecution of the Jewish population in the aftermath of World War I. Growing up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Ben Ferenz didn't speak English until he was eight years old. But once he did, he would wield the power of language to bring to light the worst atrocities of the 20th century and bring some of its perpetrators to justice. With his Harvard Law degree in hand, the Pentagon sent Benjamin to Germany to prosecute his first ever case, one that has been called the largest murder trial in history. The Einsatzgruppen were task forces moving behind the front lines and their only purpose was to kill Jews, minorities, and opposition. So they were really like killing squads. These were the forces that rode around and machine gun whole villages and communities lined up on the edge of mass graves. Judges from Britain, America, Russia, and France assemble in Nuremberg's courthouse. The Nuremberg trials after World War II were historic, the first international war crimes tribunals ever held. Hitler's top lieutenants were prosecuted first, then a series of subsequent trials were mounted against other Nazi leaders, including 22 SS officers responsible for killing more than a million people, not in concentration camps, but in towns and villages across Eastern Europe. They would never have been brought to justice were it not for Ben Ferenz. The charges we have brought accuse the defendants of having committed crimes against humanity. Back in the States, Ben could not return to the comforts of private practice. Propelled by trauma and despair from what he had witnessed, he set out to help create a more humane and tranquil world. His pen was his weapon, and his tools were his books, lectures, media interviews, and university courses. The fruition of his life's work came in 2002, when the International Criminal Court was established in The Hague. This is a historic moment the evolution of international criminal law. He is the story of how one individual has tried to change the world. The National Jewish Retreat is honored to introduce the youngest Nuremberg prosecutor and a trailblazing advocate for human rights and world peace. Please join us in welcoming Mr. Ben Ferenz. Good morning. 
Say good morning. Good morning. How are you? So far, so good. So I just want you to know, you probably can't see, but there's a large, large crowd here in the room that came to hear what, you know, your story. So I think instead of me asking a lot of questions, I'm just going to give it over to you, and if you just can tell your story right from the beginning. How'd you like? Go ahead. I thought you were going to tell the story, and I would carry on. You. However, if you want me to begin at the beginning, you did show a bit of a clip here. Uh, I was born in a little village in Transylvania. Most people don't know where that is. It used to be part of Hungary and Romania. Uh, what they had in common was that they were both anti-Semitic, and uh, it was advisable for Jews who could do so to get out of town. And uh, my father, who had been apprenticed as a shoemaker, uh, decided that he had better take his two little babies and leave for America where the prospects might be safer and better. And so we, we sailed on a small boat. Uh, we traveled third class because there was no fourth class and uh, slept on an open deck uh, in the year of December. And uh, the journey was to get to America. Um, my mother had two infant children. It was not easy because she had no milk to give me. And uh, I kept crying all the time. And uh, I was crying because I was hungry. I was nine months old. Uh, my father got so happy with his inability to get some sleep uh, that he at one point threatened to throw me overboard. An uncle who told me the story told me how it was my uncle who stopped my father from uh, getting a little peace and quiet. We landed in Ellis Island. Uh, no friends, no money, no language. Uh, eventually, my father tried to get a job as a shoemaker, but he couldn't read the instructions on the machines. And so he was unemployed. And uh, he had two little infants to take care of. Fortunately, one of the Jewish neighbors in the area we landed, which was known as Hell's Kitchen, for good reason, it was a resemblance to hell in many ways, who offered my father the opportunity to become a janitor in exchange for which he could find a shelter for his wife and his two children. And uh, all he had to do was to collect the garbage and uh, keep the halls clean and uh, see whatever else he could do uh, for the tenants who would have to tip him for the work he did. So there we were launched in uh, what I later learned was the most intense crime area in the United States. By that time I was a criminologist and could find that. But uh, life in Hell's Kitchen uh, 
was really more like hell than a kitchen. And uh, uh, when my parents tried to get me into school at an early age, at five years of age, and they said, no, I was too short, too small. I was a very small boy. I'm a short man. And uh, they said, no, he doesn't speak the language. We can't take him. Bring him back next year. Well, we came the next year, and they said, bring him back next year. They actually, next year, they said, bring him back next year. So finally, I was ready for school. By that time, my parents were ready for divorce. And uh, they were divorced, and I was farmed out to my aunt in Brooklyn, who was an older sister of my mother. And uh, she had two children as well, so it seemed to me convenient. And I began school in Brooklyn. Uh, and uh, it was not easy because my parents were divorced. They were seeking a new maid and a new job, and a, a new way to make a living in a new country. And it was not easy on any other points. And uh, when we ended up with the highest crime area in the United States, uh, it was not a good place where my mother wanted me out on the street. She kept me rather on the top step of the cellar in which we lived. And uh, here's when my earliest memories begin. Uh, I began my legal career by being a lookout for the gang when they were busy playing craps on the sidewalk, you know, throwing the craps and seeing if they can match them. Uh, and uh, the cop would come along and chase them with using his big stick, you know, and uh, they'd all run away and the cop would come and pick up the money in the pot, which was being bet against or for the player. And uh, the money in the pot consisted of mostly pennies, but nickels and dimes as well. And I noticed when the policeman came, the Irish policeman, and chased the kids away, uh, he'd go back and pick up the money. Uh, I was impressed by the fact that you could make money just by picking it up off the sidewalk when everybody is running away. But I was a very social-minded person at that time, and I figured I got to leave some money for the cop, which I did. I would pick out, if there were a couple of nickels or dimes, I'd take them out, I'd take a few pennies and leave something for the Irish cop who came and cleaned up the place. So that was my earliest memory beginnings in the United States, the land of peace and freedom and opportunity. Well, the opportunity was for my father to become a janitor, and I helped out by going to pull the ropes when he was hauling down the dumbwaiter, and I found a source of income there. Uh, Milk was sold in bottles which had a deposit, two cents and three cents. And pretty soon I could tell which was for two cents and which was for three cents. And when the dumbwaiter came down into the cellar, I would pick up the bottles which had the deposit on them 
and I'd save them and return them to the store, and for which I usually got some two cents or three cents cash, but sometimes they just let me take a bar of chocolate or something like that. So it was uh, my early introduction into the real world uh, and how what you have to do to survive. It doesn't mean that everybody who's listening to this has to go out and pull the dumbwaiter down and carry out the garbage, but uh, it gives you some idea of the setting. And it was pretty rough. Uh, my parents had nobody. They had a lot of quarreling about money. And they finally decided that they better change partners. So they were divorced when I was about six years old. And I was sent to live with my aunt Fanny, a sister of my mother, who had a house and a husband in Brooklyn. And uh, so I was farmed out to Tante Fanny, as she was called. And uh, she had a, an older boy and a girl, so we had company. And I started school there, really. But I didn't even finish the first grade when both of my parents were able to find a better mate than they had been betrothed to when they had been first wed. And uh, I was able to move back to my mama. And uh, my mama then lived in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, I started school there in public school 80 in the Bronx. And uh, one day my teacher, my first grade teacher uh, asked me to bring my parents in. She wanted to talk to them. I thought, my, what have I been doing now that's wrong? And I sort of guessed that uh, they wanted to complain to my parents about me. Well, my father was gone. He was with a new wife and raising a new family. My mother was married to a man who was uh, an iron worker, and uh, he was working. And uh, she, my mother was also working as a seamstress. She was good with a uh, sewing machine, but she had to make herself available. So she came to me to visit Mrs. Connolly, who wanted to talk to her. Mrs. Connolly also brought in the principal uh, of the school. And uh, Mrs. Connolly explained that your son, Benny, uh, is a gifted boy. My mother, whose English had been learned after she got here, uh, sort of looked at me and she said, what is that? A gifted boy. I said, I don't know. I didn't get any gifts. Uh, well, so we, we stood there dumbfounded. And Mrs. Connolly uh, said, well, he should go to college. My mother's college? Well, we didn't know anybody who went to college or what that was for. And she said, no, he's a gifted boy and he should go to college. And uh, my mother said, well, if you should go, if you think so, oh, how, do, how do we pay that? 
And uh, she said, no, we have a high school where you don't have to pay. It's called Townsend Harris, named after a, uh, an American diplomat. Uh, and uh, Townsend Harris High School, you don't have to pay anything. And if you pass the course, you will then be admitted free to the College of the City of New York. And you go to college. Well, we didn't know anybody who went to college. That was beyond our wildest dreams. We didn't understand what it was all about. But uh, my mother said, is this good for a boy? Is he for Benny? Is this good for him? And the teacher said, yes. He is a gifted boy and he should get on with his education. And uh, if he passes here, as he will, he goes to Townsend Harris High School, which is a special high school for gifted boys, not girls, mind you. And if he gets through that, he will be admitted automatically to the College of the City of New York. And you don't have to worry about any tuition expenses. Well, my mother didn't quite understand the, most of what she was saying, and I didn't either. But uh, we said, yeah, yeah, yes, of course, of course. And so off I went uh, from Hell's Kitchen. My parents were divorced. My mother got married, remarried. I farmed out to my aunt in Brooklyn uh, and uh, began my academic career, if I might call it that. And uh, it was not easy for my parents, for one thing. They each remarried quickly, fortunately well married. It remained for the remainder of their lives. And uh, I get to Townsend Harris. And Townsend Harris, one day the dean called me in and he said, you have not been attending your classes on gym. I said, well, I said, uh, I get picked up by my stepfather then and taken home because Townsend Harris was on 23rd Street and we lived up further in the Bronx. And uh, I said, I, I have a conflict every time it's lunch. It's, I have lunches done during the gym time. So he said, no excuse. Uh, you have to attend the uh, gym classes or else you'll not be admitted to City College. Well, I thought that was not very fair. And uh, being not one who accepted advice easily, I immediately went to City College and said, who in charge of admissions? And uh, they introduced me to the admissions officer. He was an obvious Irishman. And he said, uh, What's your name me by? And I said, Terrence. Oh, Terrence, my boy, come right in. And uh, what can I do for you, Terrence? I said, well, would you admit me if I didn't go to gym? Well, he said, we don't require a gym. I said, in fact, all the gym teachers know me because I had to wait for a pickup and I went to the gym and I wasn't eligible for the basketball team or the football team but I was the best one going up a rope in a hurry and then doing gymnastics and swimming. And so they all knew me. 
And uh, well, I was waiting to get picked up to be taken home. And uh, I said that uh, it's not that I did go to gym. I went more than was required. But I was told that if I don't do the classes when they're assigned, uh, I won't graduate and I won't be able to go to college. Well, so he said, oh, nuts. He said, we'll take you at any time and, and don't worry about that. So I went back to the dean over the uh, high school I was in then and counted uh, Harris and I said, you lied to me. Oh, how dare you say such a thing? I said, you told me and they wouldn't admit me. Well, I went to the school and I asked them, but they said they would admit me. And, uh, and I'm not going back to gym. I'm, I don't have to, I won't. Well, that was uh, rather a fresh answer from this little kid. And he said, you'll not get a diploma from this school. I said, so you keep your diploma. And in fact, they didn't give me a diploma until I think about 50 years later when my son <laughs> went down. And so Ben, ben, ben I, I don't want to interrupt you, but we're trying to put in 100 years of life into 28 minutes. Okay. So if we can move it up about 20 years, like, you know, Harvard, okay. something. I am, we move it up first thing is City College. City College, uh, was a school for all for boys uh, at that time anyway, and uh, uh, I did pretty well there. Uh, but I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer because an uncle of mine was talking uh, to my father, and he said Benny is going to make a good lawyer or a good crook, and I didn't know what a lawyer meant. Uh, I knew what a crook meant because I was associating with crooks every day. Uh, and so I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer and, and not a crook. And uh, I went to the College of the City of New York. Uh, I did pretty well there. Uh, the things I formed were a language, it was French. I didn't know anybody who spoke French. I didn't see why I should study French. And uh, uh, trigonometry, I didn't know anybody who knew how to spell it even, or I didn't feel I, ne I needed to do that, so I flunked that. <laughs> and, uh, and I was called in one day and said, listen, if you don't chop it up, you're gonna flunk out of here. Oh, I said, I, I, I didn't, didn't know that. And so I began to study it trigonometry in French, and I got pretty good on it. You're powerful, so I met now. I speak French now, and uh, I, uh, I did pretty well when I once I applied myself to it. However, we go in, into college, and uh, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, and I asked what was the best law school. I thought it might be Brooklyn, which was nearby. And they said, no, the best law school is Harvard. At Harvard, where is Harvard? I didn't know anybody who went to law school or even went to college. And uh, they said, well, you apply there, and if you get admitted, uh, you'll be uh, a Harvard graduate. So I applied to Harvard, and uh, 
I was surprisingly accepted immediately. And uh, that was a time when the United States had been attacked by Japan and was getting involved in the war against Japan. And uh, everybody had to register for the draft. And uh, I, of course, registered for the draft as well. And uh, the dean of the law school, Dean Landis was at the time, he wrote a note to the draft board uh, saying, this student shows unusual promise. And we would be grateful if you could postpone his induction into the army for a few weeks till he finished his first year semester uh, at the law school at Harvard. And uh, they did. And uh, it was the first indication I had from any academic side that I showed unusual promise. That's what he described it. And so instead of going uh, on to college, I went off to war. Now I had started uh, my campaign of self-defense against Hitler while I was still in law school. And I wrote to the German consulate in New York and I said I would appreciate if you would send me some of the literature which the Nazis were disseminating booklets and pamphlets and folders of all kinds so that I could share it with my other students. And uh, they did. They began sending me packages of pamphlets were full of nothing but Nazi propaganda and how you have to kill the Jews. Uh, and uh, I, of course, did as I originally intended. I threw them all the garbage. And I called them up and said, I need some more. And they sent me more. And I did personal uh, campaign of sabotage of Hitler uh, uh, while I was still in law school. And, uh, what, and, and then you went into the army? Well, then I went into the army. The army, being the army, uh, decided that uh, uh, I would qualify as a first class. <laughs> the lowest grade the army had. Uh, they, uh, and, and I was supposed to, well, the first assignment, I don't want to go through my entire army career, uh, I was supposed to study French. I didn't know anybody who knew French, or spoke French, or needed to know French. So I flunked that one too. And, uh, uh, and I didn't see why I should study anything I didn't want to know. However, they, I was persuaded if I didn't, they'd throw me out of school. So I knuckled down and I studied French like a Frenchman. I studied trigonometry like whoever uses it. And uh, I managed to pass through all my courses quite well. So uh, tell me something. How did you go from, a first, from, a, from the lowest rank to a colonel, which you were, right? <laughs> well, if I did. I, I was more than a colonel, <laughs> but I'll tell you, get, get me get me jumping from there, one to one or the other with a big hole in the middle. Anyway, uh, I went through 
high school. Uh, I did pretty well in the subjects that I was interested in. I didn't do well in the subject I was not interested in. And uh, I asked which was the best law school. I was told it was Harvard. So I applied to Harvard. And uh, I was quite surprised. I was accepted. And uh, uh, I remember the first meeting with the dean, Dean Landis, whose desk I took over later at the, at the law school, uh, when he said, you know, he said, look to your right and look to your left. Six months from now, one of you three will not be here. They had a practice of dropping one-third of the student, the law of students if they didn't make the grade. And boy, we looked at each other and we were all looking a little bit, uh, a little bit apprehensive. Who's going to be left? Uh, however, I met the test. I went to the Harvard Law School. Uh, I only discovered fairly recently that uh, they gave me a full scholarship. I never asked for, they never asked me for payment. I never gave it much thought. I was enrolled as a student. And it was in recent years when I was trying to put my records together, I discovered that they had given me a full scholarship. So let's go to the Nuremberg trial. How did, how did you become the attorney? When the war was on, and in due course, eventually, the army recognized that I had talents which they needed. When I was at Harvard Law School, one of my professors did a book on war crimes, Sheldon Gluck. And uh, I did all the research, and he published the book. Uh, and uh, when they approached him, and asked for help in setting up some war crimes things because he had written a book on war crimes. He said, go find Benny. He's out there somewhere. I was then reached full grade of a private first class assigned to the 115th AAA Battalion. That means anti-aircraft artillery battalion, uh, about which I know absolutely nothing. And uh, uh, it was in that capacity that the Army first came to me and said, hey, we got a request from the Pentagon to set up war crimes tribunals, and you know about war crimes, so go to see the judge advocate here and get started. I went to see a colonel who was in charge of the judge advocate section there, and uh, he said, we've gotten this instruction to set up a war crimes tribunal. What's a war crime? I swear to you, that's exactly what he said. What's a war crime? He had no idea. I said, sit down, sir. I'll explain it to you. And that was my induction as then a corporal uh, into the 3rd Army, into the anti-aircraft battalion, uh, to set up the first war crimes tribunal, which I did. And uh, the second man was Jack Nowitz, who was a buck private. And he was in the engineers, and he come, came in covered with mud because they just called him out. So that's the way the war crimes program started in the United States Army. I was number one employee. Jack Norwich was number two. And we divided the work. The work came first. Uh, we had reports that there seemed to be work camps. And uh, the uh, people coming out looked like they were starved. Uh, I said, well, let's get going. I jumped into my Jeep, which I acquired in due course, 
saying on the front, Inverna line, I'm German, always alone. And I said, get out of my way. I'll take care of it. And I'd rush off to the camp. And uh, my typical routine was uh, the United States had occupied the camp. Uh, and I'd ask who was the commanding officer. I'd go to him and I'd say, I'm here on orders of the President of the United States, decision to create war crimes tribunals, and uh, uh, I need 10 men immediately to occupy the Schreibstube. I had learned German in the meanwhile, uh, the, the office, and nobody goes in or out without my permission. Yes, sir. I never had any insignia on my uniform. Uh, I said, I can't, I can't do this job as a corporal or as a sergeant. So I was, in fact, pr pretending to be a higher rank man, and uh, I very seldom was challenged on that. I would say, I'm acting for the President of the United States on behalf of the Chief Commander of the Third Army or whatever it is. I need the men now, move! And uh, they would uh, uh, follow my orders and because I did it with... The... Tell me, so how, how much after that did the trial take place? In Nuremberg. Uh, that trial started that way, with my going and finding the evidence in the camps as they were liberated. The army began to do their own war crimes trials, which I'll skip over because there wasn't much to them. And uh, the Nuremberg trial, as we know, the big Nuremberg trial, the International Military Tribunal, where Justice Robert Jackson was the chief prosecutor for the United States, was in full swing. And uh, they were convicting such notorious Nazi criminals as Hermann Goering, and Hitler was known to be dead, uh, and uh, some of the others had escaped. But these were the international military tribunals, which was supplemented, because here's where your question comes in, by uh, uh, a dozen di different trials which the United States felt were necessary in order to show the German people how it was possible that a civilized country like Germany could engage in the type of atrocities which they were engaged in. And uh, so I was the first employee of, uh, of the subsequent proceedings, they were called. There were 12 trials. In that capacity, my assignment was to go get the evidence because if you have a criminal and you don't have evidence, you got nothing. And you got the evidence, you don't have the criminal, you got nothing. And I had the experience in the war, during the war, of going into the camps, collecting evidence of war crimes. And I knew what war crimes were because I read everything for Sheldon Gluck that had ever been written on the subject. And uh, so that was the beginning. And, uh, and when did they appoint you to be the lead attorney in the trial? Beg pardon? When did they appoint you to be the lead attorney in the trial? I discovered the 12 trials were all lined up and one of my researchers called me one day and said, look what I found. He brought me a pile of papers. Uh, I don't know, can show it to you here, but uh, stuff like this, a pile of papers, you know, and said, look what I found. It was in the Gestapo headquarters in Berlin. It was reports uh, from special squads known as Einsatzgruppen, it's hard to translate, it's an action group. 
their assignment was to kill without pity or remorse every single Jewish man, woman, and child the German army encountered as they swept across Europe. That was their assignment. Asked no question if the Jews, kill them. And they report back to headquarters saying how many they killed, in which town, and who the commanding officer was of that beautiful evidence. Brother, I had I had the whole pile of, of daily reports to their headquarters saying how many Jews they killed in which town and who was the commanding officer. I took a sampling of that from Berlin where I had set up a headquarters for research. I flew down to Nuremberg and I met the man who was taking over from Justice Jackson. The IG Farman trial, I mean the IMT trial, was about to wind up. Uh, and uh, I said to then Colonel later General Telford Taylor, who later we became law partners in New York, I said, we have to put on a new trial. We had planned only 12 trials against doctors who performed medical experiments, lawyers who perverted the law, industrialists who were working people to death, etc. I said, we got to put on a new trial. Telford Taylor said, you can't. Uh, the Pentagon is not very enthusiastic about these trials to begin with. And they've already assigned all the lawyers. The lawyers are all all out, all at work. I said, "Look, you can't let these guys go. I have here a million murders. You're not going to let these guys go." And uh, he said, "Well, can you do it in addition to your other work, which was research?" I said, "Sure." So he said, "Okay, you do it." And so I became, to answer your question, the chief prosecutor in a trial which was never anticipated. How many? How many were charged in your I, trial? I I was limited. That they said, don't take any more than Jackson took. They had only twenty-two seats in the in the in the, in the courtroom for the trial against Goering and company. And he said, don't do more than that. I had three thousand men. Three thousand men, mass murderers, every single one of whom, without exception and without any doubt. And they said limited to 22 defendants, 22 defendants. So I picked up 22 of the most obvious mass murderers who reported killing 50,000, 20,000, 30,000. Uh, and I brought charges against originally 24 to fill out for sickness and so on, but uh, 22 defendants. And how long did the how long did the trial take? The trial took a historic, uh, a, a historical time period. I rested the prosecution's case in two days. Two days, eat your heart out, all your prosecutors who held the, the, the suspects for years before they tried them. I said, I don't need more. I've got the proof here. This is the guy. He's there. Pick him up. Put him in. Give me the highest ranking and the best educated guys. Don't tell me they didn't know what they were doing. So I had doctors with doctor degrees, high-ranking people, and people who certainly were very well informed about what their assignment was and how to carry it out. So that's how I got Basically, in two days, you got them all convicted. In two days, I got them all convicted. And uh, 13 of them, I think, were sentenced to death. Uh, and uh, it was, here you're going to have to go in. I began the trial, it was sort of, 
sorrow and with hope that we here reveal the deliberate murder of over a million innocent and defenseless men, women, and children. So we have, we have less than 10 minutes, and um, there's somebody here who wants to ask you a very imp a question. I, I wish we'd have time. To have, I'm sure that a lot of people have a lot of questions, but I think this question you want to hear, and they would okay. all like to hear the answer. So I'm going to give it over to, Mr. to David, and he'll ask the question. Okay. Hi, Ben. Um, last, my dad comes, came to America at age 14 from Fulda, Germany. Last year, I was on the Zoom call with descendants of Fulda, Germany, along with your son. And we found out about the work you specifically did in upholding the sanctity of the Fulda Jewish Cemetery. My great-grandfather and great-great grandparents are buried in Fulda. I want to thank you for your work personally and uh, for your work in making sure that the German government would take care of the cemeteries forever. Do you recall the work in Fulda? Absolutely. And I also recall very precisely my meeting with the German ministers who uh, uh, had a fund the care of the uh, Jewish cemeteries. They said, look, uh, under German practice, oh, once a cemetery, you'll maintain it for 20 years only. I said, no, the Jewish practice has to be followed here. And once a cemetery, always a cemetery. He said, no, we can't do that because we only marry Germans for 20 years. And I pounded down the table some teeth. I picked up at Auschwitz of murdered Jews. And I said, you want them to pay for it? You ask them. Uh, otherwise, you follow the Jewish tradition. You don't, you don't carry on the Nazi part. And I, I got so excited about that. I had two assistants with me, one to Hans, Hans Gotzerstein and Israeli. They ran out of the room. They thought I was going to reach a floor and bash them onto the head. <laughs> and they, the, the chairman uh, quickly called us a recess. And five minutes later, he said, he came back. He said, we accept your condition. So they agreed at that time as a result of that meeting. And I can attribute it to my anger, which is very rare, um, and uh, my ability to slam on the table bones I had picked up when I visited as a guest of the Polish government uh, years later and uh, persuaded them to accept a financial obligation, which have certainly cost hundreds of millions of marks in the meanwhile. And I think the Germans in Fulda and elsewhere have uh, honored their commitment. Thank you again. It was a pleasure being on the call with you. It was a pleasure being on the call with your son. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so you have five minutes to put another 50 years in. Five minutes, I devoted the rest of my life to trying to prevent the crimes that I had seen and punished as a soldier and during the war and after the war as a high-ranking uh, employee of the State Department and the uh, uh, Pentagon. And uh, it took a long time to persuade the Germans to accept responsibility to pay compensation. The Germans finally did. 
those Germans who were in West Germany, the East Germans, have held out. I couldn't persuade them, uh, despite serious efforts, which I have no time to describe. Uh, and uh, uh, I devoted the rest of my life, first of all, to apprehending additional major criminals, next to providing compensation to the surviving victims, uh, to try to compensate, if you can compensate, uh, some of the crimes which were committed against them. And the third thing, I've been trying to persuade the rest of the world that uh, vengeance is not our goal. Our goal is to create a world which is, has human treatment for human beings and which will not follow the pattern of the Nazi government, but will treat all human beings as entitled to humane treatment regardless of their race or their color or their creed. That has been my goal. That has been the dedication of my life. That has been what I'm proud to say. There has been considerable progress made, but there's still a lot of way, way to go. And uh, 103 years is not enough years to change the world. But I count on the young people now, those who hear this program, it's up to you. Never give up is my slogan. Never give up. And uh, if you do, and you know you're right, that peace is better than war, and that law is better than war. These have been my guiding lights based upon the American presidents, which were Justice Jackson and company. And uh, that's what I'm doing, talking to you now. I hope some of you will realize we each have an obligation to respect the human rights of other human beings, regardless of their race or creed. We have a long way to go still, but I hope that with your help, we're going to continue to do it. Amen. But I would like, before we finish, do you mind? I, I want to share a story about, um, about Ben, just to tell you about his humility. So seven years ago, when he was 95, the Harvard School of Law bestowed upon Ben a, um, an award. Gold medal. And um, anyway, he came there. And uh, the, I'm not sure who it was, maybe the dean of the, of the School of Law spoke about Ben and described all, this, all, the, all the things that he accomplished in, in life and so on and so forth, and then asked him to get up and he took this, uh, this award, this, this medal award, and put it around his neck. And he looked at it and said, I wonder how much you can get on eBay for this. And then complained about the breakfast and said, I hope lunch will be better. <laughs> and it was hysterical. And at the end of the day, although the, the whole focus of that whole event, where there were students there, with, I think all the, all the law students of the school were there, the one thing he never spoke about himself, it was always about what needs to be accomplished. And he gave the students um, chizuk, he gave them encouragement that they should move on, they should move forward and can be concerned not about making money and not about you know, their own personal careers, but about going out there and making the world a better world. So for that, Mr. Ben, we thank you. 
and God should bless you. You should live another 117 till 120, so there's still plenty of time to get your stuff accomplished, and we, we were sorry that you weren't able to be here directly. Thank you, all members of your program. All right, thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.